Sonic State.com. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk number 120. Not 125. What am I talking about? I've short told us. 155. Uh, we're going live. We're recording live today, Wednesday, the 25th of November, 4 p.m. UK time. If you want to join us next week uh, in the chat room, that's. Uh, a good idea, sonicstate.com forward slash live, 4pm UK time. Uh, that's where we are at the moment. Uh, we'll be up on iTunes and everything, um, you know, tomorrow morning UK time, some kind of time like that. So hello and welcome to everybody in the chat room. Nice to see a good, healthy bunch in there. Much appreciated. And also, uh, hello to my local guests. Uh, first of all, I'll, I'll introduce Mark Tinley because we haven't heard from Mark for ages. So how are you doing, Mark? I'm doing good. Uh, excellent. Are you, uh, you sound like you might have a slightly different sound set up this week, is that right? Or are you sound like there's some compression going on? No, I'm, I'm using a Digi002 and I'm using the nice PV microphone and maybe I've just got it turned up louder, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's maybe it. Maybe I've but... got compression in my voice. Yes, you're <laughs> feeling compressed and ready to leap forward. Well, anyway, nice to see you, Mark. Uh, AutismHero.com uh, to keep up with what Mark's up to. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be working at the moment. Oh, doesn't it? Oh, oh dear. Well, I'm sure it will. Maybe by the time this goes out, hopefully. I did well, loads anyway. of work on my website over the weekend and the whole thing just disappeared in a puff of smoke last night. So. Oh, man. No, no local backup. Well... They're meant to have various different backups of it. I was, I just was working in WordPress and working online, so I hadn't got to the point where I thought it was worth saving. So I guess the point it's worth saving is five minutes after you've done anything you thought was useful, I suppose. But Yeah, well, I suppose we should know that, shouldn't we, really? They did Dude. say sorry, and then some of it came <laughs> back, and now the whole thing's disappeared completely, so I don't know what they're doing. But Ah, the cloud strikes again. Indeed. Oh, dear. That's a bit worrying. Uh, anyway, so, um, well, welcome anyway, Mark. Nice to have you. And uh, we'll jump to the other side of the pond where we're also saying hello to PJ Tracy, Emmy-winning PJ Tracy, who is joining us. Uh, PJ Tracy Music, in fact, is .com, where you want to go to see what PJ's up to. How you doing, PJ? I'm very well, thank you. Gearing yeah, up for the holiday. You get the day off tomorrow, right? Yep, day off tomorrow, Thanksgiving. Lovely. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, looking forward to it. Going to... Uh, my my parents are actually uh, they left town this year, which is um, un- unusual for them. But they decided to go for warmer weather, so I'll be going to the in laws for the day, and uh, we'll be cooking. I think we're starting about eight o'clock in the morning tomorrow. We've committed ourselves to making several side dishes for the big noon meal, and uh, so we'll be cooking and then eating and then uh, uh, food combing for the rest of the day. Ah, lovely. That sounds yeah. great. So is this fun. Thanksgiving? Yes, Thanksgiving. Oh, happy Thanksgiving and all that. Talk. Yeah, I'm looking, uh, for, I'm looking forward to... I think we might try and adopt that, actually. Maybe move it further back in the year so it's not so close to Christmas for my own particular purposes. But yeah, have a lovely day anyway. And all, the, all our US listeners who might be listening tomorrow, or perhaps not because they might not be working or by a computer, but afterwards, happy Thanksgiving in arrears. I think. So that other voice, um, no, it wasn't. We've already said hello to Mark Tinley. Um, so let's say hello to Dave Spears, g4software.com, makers of fine software instruments. How are you, Dave? I'm all right, thanks. And you? Yeah, good. Feeling good. And um, yeah, had a good game of tennis on Friday, on Monday night, but I'm, I'm yeah. feeling a bit achy. But it's all good aches, you know, it's the sort of aches that make you feel like you're do- it's doing you good. 
Blooming lovely. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm getting right into it. So, um, shall we start? Let me see um, what we'll start with. Oh, um, did I already say that people should leave um, the comments on iTunes to uh, help uh, promote and spread the word of our wonderful pod- podcast? Or did I do that before the show started? Well, if I didn't, I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, go forth and uh, leave comments on the iTunes uh uh, entry for for this podcast because uh, apparently what it does is kind of help you creep up the, the listings and uh, we could do with a bit of listings creep so um, please if you feel so inclined um, head over to iTunes and leave a comment um, obviously positive would be uh, pre- preferred but uh, I guess any kind of comment is probably better than none at all so anyway um, yes let's get on to the first topic because I'm starting to ramble uh, what is that first one I think the first one is uh, yes here we go I buy the Bortel and all the components I do buy and I bring it to the com- the factory that makes the assembly. But the boards arrive here just with all the com- components in place but never tested really. So I I fire up the boards, look if all the components are there and then uh, start the listening tests. See if all the mixing... The range is good and all this... The- the range of the modulation. If there's something wrong, I, I hear it quite fast, actually. Uh, when you make a circuit and, and you change something and it sounds different, you hear then it, when it goes in the good direction or not. You don't even have to know the formulas. Uh, let me give you an example. I have a guy, uh, uh, also a friend who has a big studio with analog mixing desk, and they replaced the op-amp with a b- better one, technically, but it sounded worse. See what I mean? So the op-amp with the worst technical specs sounds better. So it does some distortion. That um, was a, a quite severely edited version of uh, Herman Gillis from Sherman, the makers of the legendary uh, Sherman Filterbank, which, uh, as far as I remember, was one of the first sort of boutique studio processors. Yeah. I think it was, wasn't it? I remember when I was getting into kind of studio stuff, the, the well, probably a bit later on, actually, but it, it was when it was when synthesis and filters, it was one of the first outboard filter types that you would, uh, would use. And uh, that was uh, made by, uh, let me see who it was made by. It was for Tech Talk on Slices. I'm not sure what that is, uh, but filmed by, uh, interviewed by Holger Mick. And or Mick Holger, I'm not sure how whether they put those around. And that was just a brilliant episode of of sort of inside the home of Sher- of Herman, uh, where he makes essentially all of the Sherman filter banks. And as he was saying there, what he does is he get he buys all the parts, delivers it to a factory where they they make it with robots, and then he takes the boards back and checks them all out, and then um, assembles them and sends them out the door. And uh, they obviously, when they filmed it, they got quite Herman because uh, there's a whole load of technical talk in there that uh, that is quite interesting, but perhaps doesn't make for good soundbite clips. But uh, <laughs> I was just thinking, Sherman filter bank. I've got one of those. I've got a filter bank too, and it has the most amazing distortion. It sounds like Bit Crusher. Uh, the logic one where you just you, it's incredible in fact that's what i ended up using it for more than the filter because it's just such a, a unique and vicious distortion but but anyway um uh i just thought uh it was worth a, a kind of mention really anyone else got a filter bank or use one dave i suspect you might have people might know people who do or had one yourself yeah i mean i haven't used one for a long time probably since kind of mid 90s i suppose but I mean, like you say, it was kind of it was the sort of first real, uh, and it was built like a tank, wasn't it? 
Yeah, Sherman filter bank. Yeah, Sherman built like, filter, a, tank. like a tank. Yeah, off, and it is off. really legendary now. I did it, like that modular thing, and I thought the video was great. Actually. Yeah, it was nice. You know, I like the train going by, and it's got that sort of messy, kind of crazy uh, boffin type of thing um, um, that that you kind of that you expect from a boutique electronics manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, great sounds. Just really great sounds. Yeah, Mark, I suspect you might have. Um, put signals through Sherman filter banks once or twice in your lifetime? I have. I like them a lot. They're very good. Have you uh, Have you got one, or you just kind of use, use one when they're around? No, I don't have one anymore. I did have one. But again, probably not since about 92, 93, maybe. That, I think the, sh- the filter bank 2 must have been out a bit later on then, because I got... Um, I'm trying to remember. We d- I think I did a review. It was one of the first reviews we did on Sonic State. And... Mm. Um, it wasn't even a video review, I remember. And um, they was they when we used to film their stuff when we went when we saw them at Mesa and what have you. And they really, really, they just gave us one, which was fantastic. So I used it quite a lot when I when I was lying around. I think it's up at the Goldfrap Studio now. Um, PJ, have you uh, you come across the filter bank? I don't know if you see many of them in the states. No, I haven't actually. But I, I am I'm familiar with I'm familiar with the filter bank in that. Uh, Back starting probably around the mid-1990s uh, all the way to the present day, if you read an interview with any electronic musician worth their salt, um, they've, they, they give a shout-out to the filter bank. And, and that's uh, what surprised me about this video was that uh, he is building them in his home or, what, or was. I don't know. Have, has he, he, assemb- he assembles them. No, I think he assembles yeah. them. They still sell. I think because we, we met him at Mesa. Um, we bumped into him at Mesa this year, I think it might have been. Yeah. Or maybe it was the year before. It might have been the year before because he exhibited this year. That's right. And he was showing this uh, Rodec collaboration uh, uh, that he's kind of incorporated some of the filter characteristics of the filter bank into this Rodec DJ kind of filter unit, which is sort of pretty bonkers. Yeah. And uh, I think he, he, those are going to be mass-produced, but he makes the filter banks uh, Mark IIs. And I think he still does, like, quite a lot. I mean, people still, you know, buy them. They sell, I don't know how many oh, needs uh, yeah. to sell. I would but, imagine, because like, like I say, I think, I think if you go back, and this, this is a bit of hyperbole, but I think if you, if you go back, you know, a few years and you pick up almost any monthly issue of Sound on Sound magazine or in the States Electronic Musician magazine, you're going to see a mention of that um, that piece of gear in an interview or in an editorial it's funny isn't it it was because it was yeah. about the time that people used to put um foot pedals across everything and this was like the, the 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 rack mount equivalent of that you know wasn't it it was sort of posh posh boutique outboard yeah but the distortion's mm. astonishing astonishing anyway i just thought it was worth a mention um we got a news item on it the, sh- the link will be in the show notes so uh, check it out and uh, I think just while well, I may as well mention it, well, I think I found out they're, they're still, you, you can still buy them in the UK. I think they're about 650 quid. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Great manuals, they did, I remember, actually. Really yeah, well written. Yeah, nice. Bo- I really like the, the, I like the logo. It's a kind of uh, Edvard Munch icon with people, somebody cl- covering his ears screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, the manual, that's right. The manual has loads of references to be very, very careful. This will blow up your speakers. Mm. Yeah. But really nice. Square waves, that's what it is. Is it? I love square waves. They're really good at blowing up speakers. Oh, well, it's, it's quite possible. I mean, because it'll make a noise on its own. It's got incredibly pointy cue and quite strong uh, resonance. Hmm. Uh, somebody in the chat room, uh, Trust, I can't pronounce that, Trust, 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 the Shipman uh, uh, 
Eben Flut is supposed to be very good. Echosonic says that it's very good. And uh, that's very true. I mean, that's a kind of, it's like a, a, a filter bank on steroids and much more, well, sort of more hi-fi. It's a lot more expensive though, but that was really, really amazing. Have you checked that out, Dave? I expect you, did you I see did. that? Any of this? Yeah, I saw your video actually. Beautiful. Yeah. And it's got, it's got a really, as well as, dis- it actually it goes the other way. It doesn't do much distortion, does it? It's got, but it's got a fantastic compressor in it that's got a real sound to it. So you can really, you know, do some, some wicked things with it. But that is, that's like a couple of grand. That's very expensive. Wow. That's one of the things you always see in the background. I think um, when there was um, a recent, um, what's his name? Nine Inch Nails guy. Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. That's right. He had one or two at least in, the, in a rack behind him while he was being interviewed. Oh. <laughs> Mark JX8P, hello Mark, says in the chat room, this will blow up your speakers, not this can blow up your speakers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay, um, well let's move on to our next topic, unless anyone's got any further um, things to add. But this has been uh, quite a hot item for us this week, so I'll just play the introduction. This is Korg's new Wavedrum X. It's the second Wavedrum, the first was introduced in 94. It was very advanced too. It was the first instrument of any kind to use Korg's newly developed Oasis system. But it was very complex, very expensive, only a few were made, and it quickly disappeared into mythology. Very hard to find now. If you can find them on eBay or wherever, they're going to fetch quite tidy sums. So there's a lot of interest in this new version. What's it like compared with the original? How have they cut corners? It's a lot cheaper. So what's changed? Is it better? Is it different? Right, so that was uh, that was the introduction to our Wavedrum X review, which was done by Andy, which has d- did a fantastic job. And uh, as it's such a it's proved such a popular item, um, I thought it might be worth a mention uh, if anybody had any questions about it. Uh, uh, this obviously I'm asking for a tumbleweed moment in case uh, nobody does have any questions about it. But um, if they do, ask now. It's really it's- just a confirmation. There is no MIDI out or in or anything. Yes, that seems to have been the main kind of comment from everybody in the chat room. Uh, sorry, in the uh, in the comments and what have you. Yes, uh, it is actually confirmed, which I okay. think is a f- it's just a fairly fundamental oversight. I must say because it's <sighs> it it's very deep, and you can program some wicked things. It's got incredibly powerful synthesis and modelling and all sorts of stuff. But you say you know. You lose it, you save it, it, bre- it breaks, whatever, you can't show you, you know, that's it, gone. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, it would have been brilliant for an editor, <clears throat> software editor or something, but hey. Yes. Can't have it all. And it's 400 quid, yeah? I think it works out at 459, let's have a look, what does it say? I've got it written down. Yeah, it's 459 retail, um, so you probably get it a bit less than that. I'm fairly sure I saw it for about 499 or maybe 599 on one of the US sites. Oh. But I, I think, to be fair, it's it's not fair that we just sort of write off with that statement because it's very no, easy no, no. to overlook the fact that it's a it, what makes it unique is it's actually a tactile musical instrument. And uh, there are a couple of the percussionists at the beginning of the video uh, really kind of got. Got, got got off on that and found it very playable and were really and, and you know these are guys that play the real thing and you know live and and for money kind of thing so that was you know to, uh, to sort of counter that uh, missing point. It was a very interesting vid actually, particularly with the percussion guys because I was you know my, I think we said a couple of weeks ago my first thought was traditional percussionists have got access to a mountain usually of percussion you know real percussion gear, mm. so they'd probably be looking for different sounds but actually what the video reinforced was that this is probably really really useful especially for live use 
where they don't have to cart around, you know, loads of djembes and all sorts of other nonsense. Yeah, but then that's, you know, you'd need a couple, and if you had a couple, you'd sort of want the patches to be interchangeable, which kind of you know, takes us back to that uh, initial limitation, which is a bit unfortunate. I mean, I thought it sounded fantastic. Hmm. I think it did, yeah. And and I I mean I would I, I've heard that there may be you know, there may be a pro or a version two or something in the pipeline. You know, it would make sense certainly for them to consider it to just put a USB port on it. Because when I spoke to uh the UK uh product guy, uh Ian, he was telling me that the problem is is you know, if you put MIDI on it, people would want it to control things via MIDI. And it's so dynamic that it's almost totally pointless because you won't get anything like the expressivity that you get when you're playing it. And that's what, that, because it's self-contained, it, that's why it feels so much like an instrument, because you're not working to any of those resolutions. The resolutions are much, much higher internally. So I can sort of understand yeah. that a decision might have been made to kind of leave that out, but it seems like, you know, maybe that they should have had a USB port instead or something, or a data card or something that could allow you to move data in and out of it by some means. And that, I think... Um, is the rub i don't know pj or mark do you could you see yourself um whacking on one of these mm, no no <laughs> okay oh, if I'm i sorry, had man, any please. skill as a drummer i might but i don't all oh, right it's not you you're not a hitting things kind of person right well you know, i can't i'm definitely a hitting things kind of person it's just whether or not i do it rhythmically <laughs> right, okay <laughs> i want to use a hammer yes uh, PJ, sorry, carry on. Um, in the traditional sense, I'm 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 not a percussionist. Um, in that, I don't, you know, don't play the drums on a regular basis or percussion instruments. But I I love uh, I th- I think it's the piano player in me. I love to whack at things, and uh, yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. Um, it's it's a shame that it doesn't have MIDI capability because it would be wonderful as an alternative controller. Uh-huh. Um, but I think I think that this just kind of stresses a, a point we've made in the past that um we need a we need a uh descendant to midi something something to replace midi that would allow for uh expressive electronic instruments like this to be able to uh you know to retain their entire resolution when being when controlling other instruments or when being controlled by other instruments yeah that's mm-hmm. a very good point and i suppose you know if you're putting because th- apparently this instrument has been in development since like 92 93 so that's a lot of wow. you know it's been uh, i think that's right was yeah. that right Andy? <laughs> i suppose yeah. right yeah so you yeah. know i mean the thing is is if you're going to release it and a whole new control protocol at the same time that's quite a lot to, to, yeah oh yeah most, def- so, yeah. most definitely but uh, i just think in industry wide we need we need that because then it, 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 you can see where this is heading you know what what's possible mm. but midi is the midi's well i suppose i suppose if you take this and then you kind of apply the same sort of uh, principle to the uh, eigenharp you know that's got an enormous amount of control potential as well mm. i have to say i thought andy sounded very posh did you? Yeah. Yeah, he was fantastic. His, I saw he was putting on his best voice for it. <laughs> Is he in the room? Yes. Hey! <laughs> he can't hear me. I don't think he can hear this. 
I'm, I'm really, you know, I'd like to say thanks to Gwen again because I mean, it's just very, uh, it's amazing that we managed to get an exclusive on that, uh, particularly video-wise. Anyway, so I'm very pleased that we we were able to kind of give it do do it justice, which I think uh, think was done anyway. Yeah, so I'll put the link in the show notes and um, check it out because uh, it's you know it's a rocking rocking instrument, and I think if anybody gets the chance, they should actually try at least try one out because it's easy to sort of say ah, it's not worth, I'm not interested, but when you try it, it, it does join a lot of synapses you know there's a sort of there's this real sort of like wow this is great you know you do get that feeling from it even though you're thinking but i have these these issues but if you never get past the point of just having the issues then you'll never experience the fun that it can be so what was interesting is that andy said by his own admission he wasn't percussion player but actually what he was playing on the video sounded bloody brilliant yeah Uh, he sounded fantastic this is the point where we draw your attention to our show sponsor. We're very pleased to have them aboard, yamaha.co.uk. Thank you very much for your support of the podcast. And uh, they want to bring your attention to their monthly podcast, which uh, the, the latest episode has just gone up. The November show has gone up. He's, uh, Peter told me uh, that it was going up today. And this month they're talking to Paolo Natini, who's kind of pretty hot singer-songwriter, just before he went on stage at the Royal Albert Hall. So they did an interview. Um, he was using uh, Yamaha guitar. There's also an interview with rocker Jeff Rouse, and they had two unsigned acts in the studio to play for us and gave them two very different live performances. Uh, and it's it's not, you know, as I've said before, it's not just a kind of uh, Yamaha love fest. It's actually a, a good podcast in its own right. So uh, check it out. I know they had some uh, iTunes issues a couple of weeks ago, but I think that's all resolved. So please do check it out. Uh, if you go to sonicstate.com forward slash Yamaha, we've got a bounce page that sends you to where you need to go uh, because otherwise it's harder for them to track just the way that things are set up. And also um, they've got... Uh, a newsletter which uh, again kind of lets you know what's going on the latest and greatest news and reviews and uh, there's a couple of things on the site there's a fra- they found a that i think we might have seen this before but francis monkman of uh, curved air demonstrating the original dx7 uh, a couple of help helpful articles uh, a complete guide to understanding your mixing console and um uh, changing strings and all that sort of thing so from basic to sort of further up the food chain uh, the key thing is about it's, it's communications it's not just corporate corporate marketing bump so please uh, do check out sonicstate.com forward slash yamaha then you can get to, to check out all these links and i've said before as well that this newsletter often gets news before it goes out into the traditional channels particularly with nam coming up it might be a good time to subscribe and see how you get on with it uh, particularly if you're interested in sort of upcoming yamaha products and i do hear that they have a, a whole raft of new products coming up for nam um, and that some sometimes they do and sometimes they don't uh, and i think this is one of the years when they are actually releasing a bunch of stuff so it'll be very interesting to see what's coming on uh coming out there so do do check out sonicstate.com forward slash yamaha and we thank them for their continued support uh, much appreciated thank you very much i'm i'm really nervous now mark because i'm in the cloud and um I, the show notes are actually displaying in the cloud and if google decides to go down halfway through the show then <laughs> then i'm gonna have to do the whole thing sort of just um from memory and, i've come uh, back again since we started so that's good isn't it i guess Oh, have you? What oh, back, back? How it, you had it since it was since it was edited, or yeah? Oh, brilliant! Well, that's nice. I'm trying desperately to download it, of course. Now, so. yeah. Well, that's the way to do it, right? I, I now um, this next topic just gives me um, the chance to play one of my favourite intros of all times.
Ah, yes. ACDC and the introduction to uh, Back Back in Black uh, there. And that's the that's uh, Angus Young, of course, playing his Gibson SG Standard, uh, which apparently he... he uh, it's a 1968 SG Standard, which he bought in 1970 and has used it on all major ACD recordings and many tours since 1973 when the band came out, which is quite astonishing, really. So I, I, I should explain why this is actually uh, here. Uh, it's because there's a, an announcement from Gibson that they've announced an Angus Young SG model. And... Um, they're making 250. 50 of them have been aged, whatever that means. I don't know whether that means they just kick the wood around and leave it outside for a bit. I'm not sure. But uh, you can get an Angus cherry aged and signed for $9,400. <coughs> and an Angus um, something else. There's another one, cherry um, not aged, I guess, for 6000 And a standard one for $3,600. And it wasn't really about guitars and all of that sort of thing, but it just allowed me to play that gratuitous uh, clip there. But it was more about... Why don't we do? Why doesn't this happen with synthesizers? What is it about them that doesn't lend themselves to sort of player identification and endorsement? And um, I, I kind of I was trying to think how this worked, but then I then I thought that actually, Dave, that they do do it, but they do it with sound sets, don't they? More, you know, like you do sort of Rick Wakeman's done sound sets for you and various other kind of name keyboard players. But I just wondered what you all thought about why that wouldn't be. It's a really interesting one. My first thought was because one month a keyboard player or one year a keyboard player could be hip and the next minute he's sort of not hip. And then I kind of thought, no, maybe it's kind of more more a techie thing. Um, you know, synths are kind of supposed to be kind of shiny and new and sparkly and stuff like that. And maybe um, people just prefer names or numbers. Well, I suppose also names. you don't generally make handmade synths do you? you wouldn't make just 250 if you're going to be bothered to go to i suppose but, but i mean moog do don't they they do signature model did signature models and special editions i mean that's part of their rollout of any new product or major new products is you know there's a there's a signature model then there's the sort of standard ones and all of that kind of thing yeah yeah it's interesting i'm not but you sure would, you would imagine that you know I, I mean is it i suppose the thing about rock I may be generalising here, and I'm sure I am, is it's more about the projection of ego. And so, you know, signing products and signing all that kind of thing is 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 just a more acceptable norm, whereas introspective synth electronic music types aren't kind of quite projecting the same sort of level of ego. I mean, that that's a massive generalisation as well. I think it's think a kind of... Yeah, it's possible, but I also think it's a sort of turnover thing in that, you know, one one year it'll be this synth. But really, guitarists tend to kind of... They'll stick, you know, Angus Young will have an SG and he'll stick with that for kind of 20, 30 years. Most guitarists do seem to be like that. You know, guys swear by their Les Pauls or Strats or Tellys or whatever, and that's it. So you probably get a signature model from them within that range. Hmm. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I'm sure somebody will come out with yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know, Mark. I mean, you, I, you kind of do circuit bent stuff as well, don't you, and those kind of things. Do you think that... Uh they, I mean, that, that would make sense, wouldn't it? If you would, if you know, a Mark Tinley circuit bent version of something. I mean, I think that's got legs, or or, or the equivalent. I mean, my guess is that uh, a guitarist is going to set a guitar up in a certain way, might change the pickups about, might change the bridge or the tailpiece, or yeah. you know, maybe puts different, even physical knobs on it or whatever. So you might have a slightly different look to it, I suppose, than the bog standard one. And that's got to be more difficult to do on a synth, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, a keyboard's a keyboard, isn't it, really? And uh, I suppose you could put different knob caps on it. 
unless somebody decided to stick pennies underneath all the keys and, and created a weighted different weighting to the keyboard or something. That would be a way, though, wouldn't it? It might be, yeah. If they, if you, um, if they made keyboards with different physical weights, uh, somebody who liked a particularly heavy keyboard endorsed a heavily weighted keyboard. Would that not be? I'm not quite sure how that works in terms of the amount of, you know, uh, labour, the labour intensiveness of it. And it's something that you sort of don't see. And it's not obviously when you buy it and then take it out in a gig and people go, wow, you've got the, they'd have to play it to find out. I suppose. Well, what's this thing here? We've got pricing and availability, and if it's signed, you pay nine thousand four hundred nine dollars, yeah. right? And without signing, it's so it's his signature, and it's it has to be aged and signed. What does aged mean, though? I'm not entirely sure. I, I think I suspect it might be that it gets worn. You know, somebody rubs it lovingly for a couple of weeks with a bit of light sandpaper in the right places, so it looks like it's been rubbing against <laughs> Angus Young's belt buckle or something. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm assuming. Um, it, it, it's got to look genuine, though, hasn't it? Yeah, but there are. It can be done. I mean, we were in um, when we when we filmed the Digital Design Eleven um, thing uh, at Music Live, and my, um, Anders Glantz was playing. Uh, I can't remember the name of the model. Candy, can you remember? I can't remember what it was. Uh, and it was, these guitars are just recreations. They look vintage, but it's like three weeks old. And they look amazingly worn, you know, everything to the point of, you know, the detail. It looks like it's a 30, 40-year-old guitar, l- lovingly played. But it's, wow. you know, it's just, it's not. Faux rustification, yes, as Jay, uh, John Van Eaton says in the chat room. I've been doing a bit of that to a motorbike. I covered one in salt and left it in the garden so it would go rusty. But it doesn't look authentic yet. And that's been there for at least a month, maybe two months now. Mm, I wonder what else. Can you can you put, like, um, uh, mild acid on it to just sort of get the process going a bit quicker? Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Asio Head says, I got a Trio signature model, model Casio VL tone. Yeah. Oh yeah, wow, that's, I remember that. That sounds like a yes. wow. That's cool. Well, is it cool? Actually, is it actually that cool? It's cool that there is one, and and the fact that he's got one. But um, yeah, that it's cool because it's unusual. I think there's room for it. I think there's room for it. PJ, what do you reckon? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, I think you brought it up, and 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 Mark um, sort of clarified the fact that in synthesizers, it, it tends to happen in soundware. So you you see it a lot, you know, on online different sound designers and, and musicians that are, are famous for sp- specific types of sound are <clears throat> creating sound banks and you're able to buy them for anywhere from free to $150, $200. And uh, that's kind of the way it goes. But I don't see why not. What, you know, why not release the hardware with a, uh, you know, with, with a signature on it? But I, I think it's, as Mark said, uh, there's a lot less modification done to synthesizer hardware um, than there is to say a guitar, and on on the subject of uh, of this faux thirty year old guitar hardware, um, I wonder if that's anything like stonewashing denim. Because if you, <laughs> it's the equivalent. If you, if you, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, if you go and you buy stonewashed jeans, you know, pre ripped. Yeah, exactly. You're going to wear them for about three weeks, and then you're going to find out your feet are passing through the knees, you know, rather than. Uh, <laughs> That's rather a good than analogy. Actually, don't they do so, now? They do those ones so, that are sort of just look like they've been worn by mechanics for a couple of we- a couple of months. Do they smell like it? I doubt it, <laughs> but that would probably cost extra. 
I think I once spent uh, 50 bucks on a pair of vintage Levi's on, um, what's that street in Los Angeles called, beginning with M? Melrose. Melrose. Melrose, yeah, that's it. I went down into one of those second-hand clothes shops and definitely got stung. But they did fit very nicely, but they did have holes in the knees on purchase at 50 bucks, which is... (laughs) Vintage in the U.S. often means pre-worn. Uh, they were more than pre-war. <laughs> they were, they were pre-discarded. They were somebody else's second-hand jeans. They, yeah, exactly. Redwalk says uh, he wants his imposter stonewashed. Please, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you should do a stone. Maybe you should do a stonewashed um, uh, skin for it. See, somebody did say to us ages ago that we should sign. We should do, you know, just like a limited edition with all, with all our signatures on it, which I thought was quite an amusing idea, but a bit yeah. egotistic. I think that's. I think that would be. I think that's a good idea, though. I think there's there's ways to do it. And in fact, um, I, I forget the chat room's gone past so quickly. But uh, somebody earlier said, "What about the uh, waves? The waves models? You know, the uh, uh, the the Puig and Maserati plugging connections, which I guess is the same sort of concept in software, isn't it?" I've just had a look on the Gibson website, and the aged one is on there. There's a picture of the aged one, and it looks like somebody's just been kind of bashing it around their living room. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. The question is, the question is <laughs> do they make all the aged ones look the same, or would they all be slightly different? I think they'd have to be slightly different. I mean, that would be impossible. <laughs> it would be funny if they were Certainly the same. not impossible, but certainly very difficult. <laughs> I'm I, I'm just wondering who gets to release or who gets to put their name on the signature SH101 or the signature TB303. I'd, I'd I'd go for a Vince Clark signed anything. I think. Ah, okay. Or how how about a, um, a Daniel Miller signed uh, Korg? Uh, what was it? The the little Korg, um, not micro preset. The one before that, 700s. You know, I mean, obviously they don't make them anymore. That's why. <laughs> I think I want Tyree to sign my three hundred three. Tyree was he a, yeah. a, a particular? A particular? He was one of the acid art- artists in nineteen eighty eight. You could probably get him to do it. Oh, well, I could if I hadn't sold my three hundred three for fifty pounds. Oh yeah, no, let's not go there again. That, we've 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 been there. We've heard that sad story before, haven't we? The depressing story. It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's not so depressing because it wasn't really mine. But I suppose that makes it worse if I ever have to replace it. But anyway, oh, well, <laughs> there are people who kind of follow uh, various artists around at airports, getting them to sign, you know, cheap old guitars, aren't they? I think Jagger refuses to do it, sign anything anymore for that reason that all of a sudden you know be given a kind of 50 buck guitar at an airport could you sign this for my son and then it's on ebay for like you know a couple of grand Mm. i know that does happen uh howling terror says vince class once signed my uh uh, well we'll call it his manhood he got he got (laughs) to vi <laughs> a very, a very deprec- self-deprecating of you, Harry Terror, and funny at the same time. Uh, I wonder if that means we have to say that this is now an explicit podcast. Uh-huh. I don't think so. Anyway, um, right. Uh, I think that'll do for now. So I, I think we need to now move on to the most serious and um, time-consuming subject of the podcast, and that is this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, that's ghastly. Actually, that's quite unpleasant to listen to in headphones. <laughs> <laughs> on Skype. On Skype, yeah. It doesn't improve with um, with digitization, <laughs> to be honest. That's, that, that's what the mastering engineer does to that record, right? Sends it down Skype. Yeah, he should have done. That was um, the uh, Switched On Country, I Walk The Line. Uh, and I, I, didn't, I, I think that's uh, from Switched On Country featuring Rick Powell at the Moog. I'm not sure who Rick Powell is. I should have done some research. That was on YouTube via Credantis that was brought to my attention by the brilliant Matrix Synth uh, blog. And we look, I, the more I looked into this, the more and more of this stuff that was found. And I was just thinking, crikey, what was it about Moog switched on stuff? I mean, it sounds like, because they did Hammond ones as well. What is it about? I mean, in the same way that we had, you know, we don't have any endorsed synthesizer or, you know, any, any signature synthesizers. We seem to have an enormous number of switched on records and Hammond organ records and things played by, you know, certain kinds of synthesizers and keyboards where you don't get the kind of the, the Stratocaster album or any of that kind of stuff. What's going on? I know, and, and Dave, uh, you truly revealed your identity, <laughs> your inner workings <laughs> when you sent me a whole bunch of alternatives to the switched on track I was considering playing, which was that one. Uh, and I, I, and I've got some more, which I will play at uh, appropriate moments in this conversation. So I'd like you to explain yourself first, Dave, if that's okay. Oh dear, oh dear. I, uh, I have a slight obsession with these records. Um, I've got, I looked, when you sent this through, I looked on my iTunes and I've got 6.1 hours of this kind of stuff. <laughs> from various people, the Moog machine, John Jack Perry, obviously that's slightly, it's, it's in a similar vein, Hugo Montenegro. And my favorite is a guy called, hang on, I've got to find it here because I've lost my thread. And he is called Dick Hyman. Yes. Which sounds like some kind of seventies joke. Movie it does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and his stuff is just utterly superb. But in all seriousness, this came from a conversation I had with Bob Moog at the opening of the Synth Museum because he was, when he first uh, saw the UK Synth Museum, he was quite gobsmacked and we were filming him, chatting away about it. And it was awesome, you know, he'd, he'd never seen it. And then he came down and he was completely blown away. And then he pulled out this module from one of the three Ps and just and turned it around. And there was his signature on the back. And we interviewed him and whatnot. And afterwards, I was kind of talking to him because... I have to admit, I hadn't heard Switched On Bark at that time. I'd kind of got into synths through probably pop music. So I was quite fascinated because he was always extolling the virtues of uh, Wendy Carlos, his work, and was obviously completely fanatical about it. And then he kind of completely countered the argument by saying that essentially Switched On Bark created was such a huge hit. I think it was the biggest selling classical album ever that Loads of other people thought, if I buy a big Moog modular, which was obviously great for Moog at the time, if I buy a big Moog modular and churn out various other kind of switched-on type things, then I'll make shed loads of money. And I think that's where all of this came from. But it, I, I, I believe that Bob wasn't hugely impressed by it. <laughs> but obviously, from a financial point of view, it made perfect sense to him. So I began kind of collecting all of these albums as and when I could find them. And I found loads in bargain bins over the time and have gradually kind of put them onto iTunes and stuff. And they are utterly hilarious. Uh, oh, bloody, oh, bloody is another classic by Dick Hyman. I think that's Dick Hyman. Sid Bass is another guy. I mean, I've Sid just Bass, got Mount- that's a gr- do you reckon they're all the same people? It's quite possible. Although I do know that the Moog machine uh, is a couple of guys. This guy Norman Dolph, who was the same record exec who helped start the Velvet Underground. 
Ah. Uh, and another guy, Kenny Asher, who's a keyboard player, uh, and Alan Faust. And they just kind of did everything, you know, switched on Motown, switched on... I mean, I've got this Christmas album, this switched on Christmas or something, and it's just the most hilarious thing. So every time... I think it's called Christmas Electric by the Moog Machine. So every time, you know, we have a kind of Christmas gathering after we've heard the Carpenters and that King Cole and the Stevie Wonder album, I still play a lot. Um, I'll put this on to basically drive people away. <laughs> yeah. All right. Christmas Eve drinks are over. <laughs> time to go. Yeah. <laughs> that followed by Mannheim Steamroller. But I have to say, I mean, listening to a couple of the other examples you sent me, you know, they were pretty badly played i mean really quite out of time i mean you know and i know that's not just me being sort of switched onto the grid and you know noticing every minutiae of timing deviation it was just quite rubbish i thought some of the sounds truly horrendous i mean that james brown turn it up or turn it loose here we just has this one yeah But listen, it's just a random playing of it. What? I mean, what? Was he <laughs> actually was he actually in the same room as the other musicians at any time during the recording of that? I mean, or that was just. I was just, I'm, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know what to say, really. And, and there's more. Jumping Jack Flash is a particularly insidious one as well, which I might play us out with. Um, but, but brilliant as well. It, I think you're right. It must be a, a kind of money-making kind of concept. I don't know. What was the other stuff you said? EVE or J, what was the other stuff you sent me? Well, EVA, that was Jean-Jacques Perry. And that is a brilliant piece of music. I mean, that's so kitsch. I think that was used for, uh, what was the thing over here? Euro Trash. Might and have been the, um, the sample, it was sampled for uh, Bentley Rhythm Ace, wasn't it? Ah, okay. And I think even um, the, oh God, who was it? I got a feeling the Beastie Boys even sampled various bits and pieces. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it is just so brilliantly kitsch, but so terminally crap. It's brilliant. <laughs> PJ, have you got any collections like this in your record collection that you would uh, care to offload? Uh, I don't have any of the of the of this switched on stuff, but over the years, I've collected all kinds of very strange, kitschy vinyl, and 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 some of it sounds much like what you've just played <laughs> i don't know i mean all i can say is cocaine's a hell of a drug <laughs> you think that's my, you think that's what it was i don't know mark you you must have come across the i mean i've seen because they did do um hammond stuff didn't they introducing the, the hammond organ popular hits of the 60s and all that kind of thing didn't they they did yeah um i can't i, I can't think of anything to say that hasn't already been said <laughs> I did like that bit, that really out of time. It's pretty much, yeah, it's all right the first time, but then when you hear it again and again, you just think, oh, no, come on, play something else. It's like he learned how to play it that badly and and then carried on. These days, people just release stuff left, right and centre, so you can imagine stuff like this being out there because it's kind of, someone would think, oh, this is really cool, look what I've done, I want to show the world. And that's the way it works now, but... In the sixties and yeah, the seventies, well, had to get someone to fund it. Hey, <laughs> the press yeah. yeah, yeah. As Dan uh, AU says, uh, there's a lot of uh, mighty Wurlitzer stuff as well because that was you know that's and that's going back to mm. maybe the forties and be- before, isn't it? Didn't they kind of release recordings of the mighty Wurlitzer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's, it's are, fascinating. Are there any Mellotron records? 
not that I know of. I know that the guys from Mellotron UK did an album with various people. But I mean, that was. I just you know, found a switched on Mellotron by Tara Bush on YouTube. Oh, cool. <laughs> I bet oh, that's okay. good, actually. I was, I was just looking up this Kenneth Asher, and it turns out that he um, played keyboard and string arrangements on John Lennon's Mind Games, Walls and Bridges, Rock and Roll and Yoko's A Story, but he also uh, did arrangements for Meatloaf's Batter Out of Hell. Wow. Now, there's a very okay. rich and varied career. Well, there you go. He can afford to put his own records out, then. <laughs> I wonder what the motivation was for it, though. It's interesting. It must have been like, kind of, we can make a few quid here. Well, they, you know... The Mokes were considered, they were novelty machines. And I suppose only if, you know, not many people could afford them. Yeah, interesting. And that's why it's kind of hats off to people, you know, bands like Tonto and all those guys who actually did something quite inventive with this. Because, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of this stuff is just a kind of Moog bass line and some kind of faux guitar part with a few effects. But, I mean, it's some, some of it's just got a traditional kind of band that you'd hear playing in your, I don't know, like a wimpy or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. The thing about the Wurlitzer stuff as well is that in any of the old dance halls, particularly Blackpool Tower, uh, the ballroom springs to mind, there's actually a, a really accomplished guy sitting in there playing that massive Wurlitzer and he comes uh, out yeah. the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's amazing to watch because he's really good. And I guess that they're just, some of those things are just recordings of those sort of masters at that. And they probably did make mistakes while they were recording, so maybe that's why you've heard mistakes and things. Once. Yeah, that was mostly mistakes and not any... <laughs> you know, what, what, one thing that we can't discount either is that, at least in, in a few of these cases, that uh, these these artists heard Wendy Carlos or a previous iteration of this of this genre and said, that's a fantastic idea and I've got something to offer. And yep. they... And it became a you know a passion for them to 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 do it you know to to do their own yeah. version of this. And they'd uh, still for, have had to have some fairly kind of serious multi-track technology to be able to kind of overdub this thing or create, yeah, create some. It does almost smack of record companies kind of going, "Hey, we've heard that this Moog thing's like the next hot thing." Mm. Uh, uh, everyone likes Motown. Let's do Moog yeah. and Motown, and we don't have to deal with an artist. We're just dealing with an inanimate instrument. Well, I'm um, sure most people just thought, you know, it plays itself. Yeah, that's true. Well, of it course. sounds um, like it. <laughs> Zen artist in the chat room says, "Do you did any of us open our Tara Bush box sets yet?" And uh, the answer for me is no. I don't know whether you have, Mark. No, I haven't. But I was just telling him that there's a there is a Facebook uh, page for it called the Pilfisher Lane 100. Ah, oh, we must get a fan page together. Also, um, Tara is coming over this month, I believe, and uh, I did when I spoke to her in the summer. We uh, we did talk about getting her to come on the podcast, and it may well be that we can we can do that. So I must get in touch with her and see if she's around because I'm not sure. I think she was coming to Bath at some point, so maybe we can arrange for her to come on a Wednesday and we can do the show. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, I noticed somewhere that she says she's playing in London on the seventh of December. I think. Okay. Right, I will have to check. I'll have to check in with her. She might be travelling at the moment. I forget now. So, so has uh, anybody opened the box sets yet? Because I know Chris here hasn't. I don't know. <laughs> There's a few people in the chat room who said they have. Oh, okay. But uh, no, mine's still, mine's still sitting actually in the place that it was when I opened the parcel just to check that what it was. I've got an art wall as I walk into my studio space 
where I've got loads of pictures hung on the wall and I just hung the entire cardboard box and everything on the wall because the stamps on it looked so cool the way they'd laid them out. I thought, yeah, that's art as well. I just put I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do that. I'm going to have to put it up on the wall so it can be the backdrop of my next uh, video shoot for uh, the uh, Sonic Lab uh, product tests, I think. How, how's this going to work though? If I'm determined to be the last one to open it <laughs> and everyone else is, then they'll never well, go right? <laughs> you're a little bit older than me aren't you so you, i don't know we'll just have to wait and see won't we yeah <laughs> it's gonna go on for years and years and years with my dying breath will be i still haven't opened it mark <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna put it in my will don't oh, yeah. open the tower it must never choice. be opened yeah. okay <laughs> i'm sure she'd be honored what about the uh, open lab sound slate that looked quite interesting did you see that yeah. It's a new, um, it's kind of, well, Open Labs, as we know, um, were sort of first to market for making kind of dedicated computer hardware, which featured a performance aspect for musicians, you know, with their Nico and Miko and those kind of things. I forget the name of all of their stuff. I should remember because uh, they're obviously an advertiser on Sonic. I mean, that's got no, no bearing on why we're talking about it. It's just the fact that they've released this one U. It's a Core Duo, 2.8 gigahertz, uh, upgraded with 4 gigs of RAM, 500 gig drive upgradable for two uh eight usb ports uh gigabit ethernet dvi ports eSATA, and it'll run a pro tool system there's a shot and it's, it looks like what it's doing is they, that's kind of really going for the uh the kind of muse receptor market and it looks what it looks like, it really reminds me of a kind of really posh hi-fi separate I, and it's you can get uh optional touchscreen controller you know it's, there's quite a lot of stuff you can do with it i think the basic model is two grand uh dollars that is so i don't know what that uh works out at, uh, when it gets to the uk but uh, they do the same thing as those carillon guys did which uh you could they if you put your machine on the network they can get in and fix it and sort it out and the idea is presumably you just make it into uh, a dedicated music machine and don't use it for anything else although the temptation is obviously going to be to check your email and browse the yeah. web and all that kind of stuff I'm starting to think that this is going to become more the norm. So things are going to become more discreet and less multi-purpose. And I wonder whether this is just another sort of movement along the line, particularly where computers go. Because as I've, I think I've said before that, you know, pow- really powerful computers, none of us really need them. You know, for, for general sort of everyday work, I'm talking to the general public at large, whereas for people who create content such as musicians and uh, video editors and that kind of thing, they're going to need these really specialised machines that nobody else really needs because all they need to be able to do is run a browser and have loads of RAM for running Flash and Java sort of stuff. So do you think this is kind of... A, 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 a harbinger of, of things to come, or am I well the mark? Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was talking to Gina about this the other day, my partner, and we were talking about computers and where we thought it was going to go next. And I think that, um, I think you're right, actually, to a certain extent. I think you're right, because I think that um, the computers that we have in our homes are probably going to change somewhat. And Bill Gates has been trying to uh, get people to use something other than a keyboard and a mouse, hasn't he? And has been investing a lot of money in alternative input um, stuff. Right. But the only way they're going to make that a reality that I can see is to, is to put expensive devices out there in the world that people can go and use, which means, in other words, if somebody's going to use something that doesn't have a keyboard <laughs> and a mouse and it has an expensive interface 
Mm. People aren't going to buy them unless they're out there in the world for them to use. So I think that that they're going to set up stations or cafes or something with these things in, and you'll walk into a a station or a cafe or whatever, you know, the the library or something, and try out this very expensive piece of hardware that will do something that you can't do with your computer at home. But I'm not quite sure what that is yet. Um, But what that does mean is that the, the, the... the computers at home will just sort of become browser and email only. And then for, like you were saying, for these kind of for more specialist audio applications, you will need something that has the power to run that. But surely that's going to mean that it's all going to go up in price. We're used to really cheap hardware and it's actually going to become much more expensive, which is an interesting thought because, I mean, obviously lots of people have got stuff involved in, in invested in sort of mass uh, consumption of, you know, of things, you know, things like the garage band side of things and all that sort of thing. And it looks like, to me anyway, that this is going to be reversing and going in a different direction. I don't know, Dave, are you... Um, do you, do you share my um, my view, or are you are you of a different? I'm probably of a different persuasion. I think wherever there's a market, someone will just come along and try and plug it, so that wherever whatever wherever this goes, if it leaves anything open behind it, somebody will come in and go, ah, but this is cheaper. Ah, but this is 64 bit. Ah, but this is 192k. Ah, but this is uh, this lost me. I'm afraid it lost me at. Uh, $1,999 and the advertising that it was contained within a sexy 1U rack mountable <laughs> case. And personally, I don't think I've ever seen a sexy 1U rack mount. Oh, come on. I don't believe you. You're no, you're, so you're telling me you're not a fan of blinking lights? Well, yeah, but they have to have, have knobs and look big <laughs> and robust. Yeah, but that's what you hook something else up to. You know, you hook something up. I don't know. I, I could see, you know, certainly, I mean, they're obviously going for touring and studio people. It's the same kind of vibe, isn't it? And it's smart because their other ranges are sort of fairly unusual and, and weirdly shaped and sort of, you know, non-standard sizes, which makes them really sort of intriguing for people to use, but quite probably difficult to transport and, you know, what have you. Whereas this is obviously just kind of much more uh, in the pocket, I suppose, yeah, or on the rack. I can certainly see it for gigging-wise. And I do like the... Was it Nico, Miko, and Chico, or whatever it is? I do quite like those. Um, in fact, they were really. I mean, do you remember when that was kind of previewed at NAM? That was oh, just yeah, like, that was the buzz of the show, wasn't it? Completely. Well, that was our first NAM, I believe. Uh, I think our first NAM when we went, uh, and that was when it came out. So that's got to be seven or eight, nine, t- nearly ten years ago. Maybe even ten years next year. Actually, our, that might be our tenth NAM. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it was stunning, really, because I mean, it really did. It just whipped around all the halls, and everybody was kind of legging it down to see them. And this kind of sceptic in a lot of us was kind of going, yeah, yeah, but it's a prototype and it'll never see production. But, you know, hats off to them. They've done really well out of this. Some great endorsees. In fact, a friend of mine has just signed an endorsement deal with them and he's going to use it live constantly. So, yeah, I think, you know, from a portability point of view, yes. Hmm. But I can't see this disparity between consumer and I just can't see it really. um, I can't see this divide widening, no. Well, you've got a quite a, a, an eight-core Mac, right? Yeah. And, you know, bearing in mind that uh, one of the big problems that uh, Microsoft's had, you know, with, with their uh, operating system is nobody felt the need to upgrade to it. The only way they're going to do it is by, you know, OEM um, stuff being installed on new machines. So when people buy new machines, the thing is sales of PCs I don't think is, is going up exponentially because most people find that their, their machines are perfectly adequate if they've bought one in, the, say, the last couple of years 
to sort of handle pretty much you know most of the stuff that that you need them to do yeah but yeah. that happened that happened before didn't it at the end of the 70s and the sort of beginning of the 80s when when did acorn go bust around that time that happened yes. the boom in people buying things like the zx spectrum and all these gaming computers and then uh and then Amstrad came out with the PC that people could use for word processing at home, and there was a massive slump in the market when everybody had what they needed. And they just have to generate something else that every, anybody, everybody needs, and I think that's going to come from what I was saying about the interface thing. And whether that interface thing will use the same core processing as a computer you might want to use for creating music I don't know. That's going to be the question. Well, so, yeah, but there might be, because, I mean, you can see that, um, this is getting a little technical, but you can see that uh, that server technology would make, you know, would have uh, multi-core and, you know, all this sort of, for virtualization, so you could run multiple instances of operating systems on a single piece of hardware, but we don't need that kind of stuff at home. So that, by its very nature, is going to become specialized to people who use web, you know, web applications or create web applications not really for the person who's using them i quite like the idea of this tablet stuff you know being able to hook up to my big mac as it were but i'm Mm, sitting downstairs in front of the tv but i've still got access to all my drives and all of that kind of stuff i do quite like the idea of that that well i think that's going to be more likely the sort of joined up stuff but i mean for real-time music and audio that's not really going to fly unless we have super fast high frequency networks which is going to be really kind of for, for musicians i'm thinking i don't know pj would you how do you see that i mean do you think this, this is gonna gonna change for you no i i don't know uh it's it's interesting to listen to everybody's points of view on this i think that um you, you know this this generation of computing um you know especially in the last uh, computing power in the last couple of years has most i mean we, well you can see it because we've covered it a lot on sonic state it spawned a lot of content creators and these people are you know most definitely hobbyists but um you know some some of them might some of them most de- most definitely will take the leap to create things that you know that that are marketable and will be sold and and they'll work their way into uh i i guess professional niches uh and so i i wonder if um you know if if you ever will be able to completely alienate the the general public from from being able to to create content at this point because you uh, the pandora's box has already been opened i mean there's there's such a there's there's not the despair i mean the disparity that existed say 10 years ago between what was a a professional level um you know computing device for audio or video creation um and what was a consumer device uh, no longer no longer exists it's just i don't know i'm gonna argue with you okay I've had iMovie on my Mac for years, right? And sure. I found it worked in a very similar way to any other editing system up until recently. And the most recent incarnation of iMovie thinks I'm a complete imbecile and I don't know how to edit video. <laughs> and what it's basically done is it's made it easier for anybody that's never edited video at all to edit video. But but it's it's created a sort of a distinction between people that can and people that can't. So although I could and was perfectly happy with earlier incarnations of it, this latest incarnation of it makes no sense to me whatsoever. So if they carry on doing things like that, in other words, creating really dumb, simple programs for people 
who are supposed to not be able to do this stuff, then they're going to create a divide, aren't they? Yeah, so you'd have then have to buy, you know, the Final Cut Express Pro Studio or whatever. <coughs> okay, but that, that's always been the case. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to argue with you there for certain, but the cost of stepping up from, if, if you're curious and you want to delve deeper into, you know, the world of video editing and you realize that there is a disparity there, and that you are being, you know, you are being coddled to or patronized a little bit by that software once you've once you've come to a certain, you know, cr- creative point in your in your artistic evolution. Then the cost of getting into the game, so to speak, is is negligible compared to to where it was even ten years ago. I mean, uh, uh, take right, take yeah. the ex- take the example of mixer automation. I mean, in the mid in the mid nineteen nineties, you're you're probably looking at about ten thousand dollars to get into rudimentary automation for a mixing console. Oh yeah, I remember there was that Steinberg thing, wasn't there? Yeah, and by nineteen ninety nine, you had uh, Pro T- Pro Tools LE systems. You know, so the, the cost the co- the cost dramatically drops. The functionality dramatically goes up, and and this continues to happen year after year after year. And I can't see that stopping. You know, I I, I just I just don't see that going mm. in the other direction. It's interesting, but um, it's, it's definitely an ongoing thing. I mean, I guess nobody really knows where it's going. I mean, you know, the multi-cores thing is all well and good, but ultimately there aren't actually that many applications written to take advantage of them properly because you get that thing with, uh, you know, race conditions, which is the, the thing about data arriving at different times and have everything having to know what the current state of it is. But otherwise, it doesn't work properly, you know, and that, so that, that that complicates the programming and the management of the data so an enormous amount. So it's very hard to write applications that can take advantage of these multi-core processors, which is obviously what the chip manufacturers are making to gear up for virtualization and all of those things which are not necessarily the same thing that you need when you when you just need raw horsepower for processing 24 tracks of 96k audio or whatever yeah you, know, you need bigger you need you need you might need a couple of cores but you still need a bigger gigahertz count you know i'd rather have you know two three gigahertz cores than four 1.5 gigahertz cores because i don't get the raw power without but the caching is going to work in a different way isn't it and all sorts of stuff like that so I suppose, yeah. I don't know enough about it, I suppose, is the thing. But anyway, fascinating stuff. And I suppose um, that brings us to the end of our uh, podcast. Uh, that was Sonic Talk number 155. Uh, very much thank you to all our guests. Um, thank you to the people in the chat room. And uh, don't forget, um, if you use iTunes, head over and leave a comment on the uh, show um, just so that uh, Apple maybe uh, sees that we're increasing in popularity and puts us on some chart somewhere so we can snowball. But anyway, um, thank you very much to all my local guests. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, thank you very much to Mark Tinley uh, from Autism Hero. Glad to hear your website is back up and running again. It's not. Oh, it went down again. Oh, <laughs> they, Well, I think it might be me because every time I try to access it via FTP, the whole thing just drops offline. So, I mean, I don't think it's, I think uh, it's, you know, partly down to me trying to access it via FTP that's killing it. But anyway. Okay, well. I don't know. I don't know what's happened there, but I hope it all works out for you. And thanks for joining us, Mark. Very well. Thank you. And I uh, will say also thank you very much to uh, PJ Tracy in Minneapolis. Uh, PJTracyMusic.com. Let's check out what PJ's up to. Thanks for joining us too. Have a lovely Thanksgiving. Nick, thank you so much. And thank you. And happy Thanksgiving to all the US listeners. There's a, a lot to be grateful for this year, I think. Yes, uh, I'm into that. Uh, and also, uh, Dave Spears from g4software.com. 
Thank you. Yes, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yeah, love love to everybody in the family. I hope uh, they don't get too ill, and you have a uh, have a have a restful weekend and all of those things that are coming up. I somehow don't think that's going to happen. Oh well. Anyway, <laughs> the. Uh, Show will be live tomorrow morning, uh, UK time, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. That's Sonic Talk number. No